This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is sponsored by Melville House Publishing, publishers of White Muslim, From L.A. to New York to Jihad, by Brendan Bernhard, the first book to study why more and more Westerners are converting to Islam after 9-11. Available in bookstores now or on the web at mhpbooks.com. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 25th day of February in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. Today on the show, Moby Liz reporter Kelly Burdick talks to Anne Elizabeth Moore. She's the publisher of the Punk Planet book and zine empire. They discuss a distribution crisis that's threatening Punk Planet and some of the country's other leading zine and small book publishers. And I talk to former television star Denise Nicholas about a book she's written that Newsday says is, quote, perhaps the best book of fiction ever written about the civil rights movement, close quote. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, the final chapter of the James Fry story may have been written this week. Riverhead Books, an imprint of the world's second largest publisher, Penguin, uh, that is, Riverhead is an imprint of Penguin, which is the world's second largest publisher. It's not an imprint of the world's second largest publishing penguin, uh, although that may be true, I don't know. Riverhead announced it was not going to go through with its Megabucks two-book deal for James Fry's next two books. In the wake of the crushing humiliation that Fry suffered on the Oprah Winfrey show, which reached levels previously reserved for pedophiliac priests, this means Fry is now also out of a rumored seven-figure sum. And this on top of reports that the film deal for the book at the heart of it all, A Million Little Pieces, was also going to be canceled. And as if that wasn't enough, the terms of Fry's contract cancellation with Riverhead dictate that he now has to go pheasant hunting this weekend with Vice President Dick Cheney. Okay, this is, this is really it for James Fry stories. A woman in Illinois has filed a federal lawsuit against Random House and its imprints Doubleday and Vintage Anchor and the Borders bookstore chain seeking to prevent them from promoting A Million Little Pieces as a memoir. It's the third such suit, and Sarah Brackenridge claims she was a victim of consumer frauds at the hands of the three publishers and the downtown Chicago Borders bookstore where she bought the book. A report in the Chicago Sun-Times says the lawsuit charges four counts of consumer fraud and unjust enrichment. In other words, says Brackenridge, they knew, they knew. Well, in other news of fake writers... The New York Post's page six ran an appreciation this week of celebrities who said they were intimates of writer J.T. Leroy, who turned out not to exist. Page six noted that, quote, it seems clear now that at least Winona Ryder and Asia Argento always knew that J.T. Leroy was actually Savannah Canoop, 
A California woman who posed as the imaginary writer under wigs and oversized sunglasses at book readings, and that Leroy's prose was actually written by Laura Albert. Close quote. Page six noted that Argento at least had reason to lie as she was hyping her role in the forthcoming movie version of the Leroy book, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. It's due out next month. But what was Winona Ryder's reason? Page six notes Ryder, <laughs> quote, spun a tall tale to Vanity Fair about meeting Leroy when she said he was still living on the street. Ryder said it was right after her breakup with Johnny Depp and, quote, I had two tickets to the opera and I was like, I don't want to go alone. And then I saw this kid standing near the doors to the opera house and he was trying to listen in. He was a total ragamuffin. So I said, hey, I have this extra ticket. Do you want to go see the opera? He was too young to be creepy. He said, oh my God, I really wanted to see this. I think it was like La Boheme. And then he was crying throughout it. And I started crying for my own reasons, watching this beautiful kid so affected, someone his age grasping it. We went to the diner afterwards and we talked. I wanted to take care of him. I wanted to have him move in but he said he was heading back south. I fell in love with him, and I've been in love with him ever since. Close quote. And just like that, Johnny Depp was dead to her. Dead. And speaking of dead, a German academic says she knows what killed Shakespeare. A lump over his eye. Professor Hildegard Hammerschmidt Hummel says a comparison of portraits of the bard shows swellings around Shakespeare's left eye. She says they're evidence that he had lymph cancer. She said dating the portraits using forensic methods shows he suffered for around 15 years of steadily increasing pain until oomph. But what happens when an academic expresses an opinion? That's right, Hildegard got swarmed by other academics who disagreed. Uh, while some pointed out that the portraits had not all been authenticated, British professor of Shakespeare studies, Stanley Wells, said simply, and I quote, rubbish. At which point Hildegard punched him in the eye, which began to swell, and, well, Wells is now a worried man. Uh, well, we can't get enough of that fake writer news, so back to it. Right-wing historian, British historian David Irving, was sentenced to three years in prison. In an, in an Austrian court this week after being convicted of publicly denying that the Holocaust took place. This, even though early on in the trial, he, he told the judge, I take it all back. In fact, an Associated Press report says within two weeks of his arrest, Irving said through his lawyer that, quote, he had come to acknowledge the existence of Nazi-era gas chambers, close quote. Then, just before the trial took place, Irving himself told reporters that he now realized the significance of all the voluminous evidence, the pictures, the film, the written records, and the several million eyewitness testimonies. He realized what they all meant, that the Nazis had apparently systematically slaughtered Jews during World War II. Then at his sentencing, Irving told the court, quote, I made a mistake when I said there were no gas chambers at Auschwitz. To which the judge said, I'll say, as police led the handcuffed Irving from the courtroom, they stopped off at an enclosed room with strange nozzles in the ceiling and told him he needed to take a shower before going to prison. Then they said, just kidding. Well, sometimes, kids, the news is no laughing matter, but it does have happy endings. That's it for this week's News from the Book World. I'm Dennis Johnson.
It's Saturday, February 25th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. February 25th, back in 1956, was the day that launched a thousand graduate theses, because on that day, poets Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes first met at a party in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Sunday is February 26th, and on that day in 1564, the poet and playwright Christopher Marlowe was baptized in Canterbury, England, two months before the birthday of fellow playwright William Shakespeare. Apparently, it was a good year for playwrights. And this Monday, the 27th of February, is the birthday of novelist and humorist Peter DeVries, born in Chicago, Illinois in 1910. DeVries is perhaps best known for his humorous novels, including Comfort Me with Apples and The Tents of Wickedness. But after his daughter's death from leukemia, his work became much darker, and his autobiographical novel, The Blood of the Lamb, was the darkest book DeVries ever published. It shocked critics at the time of its publication, though now most consider it his masterpiece. February 28th, this Tuesday, is the birthday of the great French essayist Michel de Montaigne, born in France in 1533. Montaigne coined the word for a short prose piece, essay, from the French word meaning to attempt. Wednesday, March 1st, is the birthday of novelist Ralph Ellison in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1914. Ellison is best known for his groundbreaking novel, Invisible Man. And Thursday is March 2nd, and on March 2nd, Yiddish writer and soon-to-be Melville House author Shalom Alechem was born in Russia in 1859. Alechem shares a birthday with the novelists Thomas Wolfe and John Irving. And Friday, March 3rd, marks the anniversary of the death of French experimental writer Georges Perec in 1982. Perec was a member of the Ulipo group of experimental French writers and is perhaps best known to American readers as the author of the book The Void, an entire novel written without using the letter E. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I've got Anne Elizabeth Moore on the phone. She's the associate publisher of Punk Planet in Chicago. Uh, thanks for coming on Moby Lives. Well, thank you. Uh, so lately, Punk Planet's been having some serious distribution problems. Can you tell us about that? We have. Well, we are definitely not alone in having them either. We work with an organization called the um, Independent uh, Independent Press Association, who has a distribution arm called the Independent Press Newsstand Services. And uh, they used to be named Big Top, and they... On October 19th of 2005, sent a letter out to all their publishers explaining, acknowledging that they'd been having serious cash flow problems and um, serious staff shakeups. And basically since then, we've been struggling to both work out a way of getting any money from them at all, since we rely on them for a good chunk of our income, 
but also to get any information about the kinds of money that were owed. And so there's been two major problems as communication and also actual money. Right, and, and Punk Planet certainly isn't the the only magazine we're talking about here. The folks who have been affected include Clamor and Toledo and Herbivore in Portland mm-hmm. uh, and In These Times, which is also another uh, exactly. indie press newsstand. The Progressive, uh, Color Lines, Bitch, all so, of these magazines. So lots and lots of magazines. Much of our culture relies on for a lot of our information is are being threatened or affected by this in some way. Now, is uh, is this is the distributor Indie Press Newsstand Services? Are are they an evil company, or what's going on here? No, um, although you know, I'm not exactly excited about them <laughs> right now. But they're they are the independent um, distribution option on a national level. Much of distribution right now is handled by um, sort of the big media companies, and in many cases are very um, thoroughly influenced by major uh, book chains like Barnes and Noble and Borders, and the independent um, indie press newsstand services is supposed to be the independent alternative to that. And what is going on now? They're you know claiming to some degree, and it's probably very true that this is a a response to the increasing consolidation of media in in our country. Now, to some extent, they're supposed to be insulated by this. They're a not-for-profit, right? Uh, the IPA is a not-for-profit, yes. And then the, it's a for-profit arm that's distributing the magazines? Uh, well, I'm not really exactly clear where that line gets drawn, but yes, the IPA is supposed to be a not-for-profit organization. And it's supposed to be the blanket organization that protects independent publications. And so, you know... Of course, we'd love to be able to turn to an organization that would be able to help us as an independent publication while this is going on, but that would be the IPA, and they're... They're, know, they're involved. Involved, yeah. Now, a magazine like Punk Planet, for, for listeners who don't know, has a, a, a big circulation, but not a huge circulation. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was wondering if you could speak to just... For, for listeners who don't know, how many people read Punk Planet? Where are they buying Punk Planet? Are they subscribers? How does this work for a magazine your size? Well, uh, we're actually pretty atypical of a magazine of our size. We have a, a circulation of approximately 20,000, um, and only about 2,000 of those are subscribers. Most magazines of our size, most independent publications, that's reversed. So whereas we only have sort of a 10% subscriber base, most publications will have a 90% subscriber base. So we're very heavily reliant on newsstand sales. Um, and um, so 20,000 is sort of the, the number of copies that get put out into um, the world. 2,000 go to subscribers. About half of them then go to Big Top or Indie Press newsstand services. So if you're not getting the money from your distributor for the newsstand sales, you're, you're basically not getting any money at all. Uh, pretty much. Actually, we um, a very good, like, close to 40% of our monthly income comes from directly from Indie Press newsstand services. And the rest of the, the money that goes into supporting the magazine really comes from ad sales. Right. So... But, but Punk Planet, I mean, which has been called, I, I think I've read someplace, the, the New Yorker of the zine world. <laughs> the New Yorker of punk magazines by uh, well, the Washington Post, who by would the know? Washington, right. Um, you, you folks are actually new to the, to, 
indie press newsstand services, right? Yeah, well, we were, so we were founded 12 years ago by my partner, Daniel Sinker, when he was still in college, and he was, he was 19 at the time. And uh, the magazine itself was sort of a, a reaction to other media that were going on that weren't actually covering what he and his sort of publishing partners found interesting, like the Riot Girl movement and, and the early stages of what is now called emo. And um, this sort of stance as being an independent and critical source hasn't really left the magazine ever. And so we have completely gone about building our business in a, in a way that is not typical of a magazine. So we were distributed for a long time through a music distributor uh, called Mortem that is now uh, the Lumberjam Mortem Music Group. And, um, and so that has led us to a situation where we actually switched over to Indie Press Newsstand Services very few months before this happened. And so the end result of that is that we actually didn't see any money from working with Indie Press for, you know, most of the time that we were working with them. Which was a really bad start to the whole partnership. A very bad start, yes. And they've been pursuing Punk Planet for a long time, so it was really very frustrating. So, you know, is besides a music distributor like what you folks were working with before, is, is there another option? Or is this for literary critical magazines? Is, it, is this the one choice and now the one choice is run out of money? Is that what's happened? Well, the thing is, I mean, we're not sure what's going to happen with the IPA or, or IPNS. Um, but because Punk Planet is very dedicated to independent culture and not working with mainstream media and not working with major labels or um, major corporations, we need to find a way to do this that is still independently based. And pretty much the solution that we've come up with is taking back some of that distribution in-house. And we're not quite sure um, how we're going to invent a day that has 34 hours in it, but that's pretty much what we're going to have to do in order to uh, make up for this craziness. Right. But you've also had a, a fair amount of support from your readers. You went basically door-to-door asking for yeah. for donations and folks to buy things from the online store. And yeah. Well, you we, you know, everybody says, like, oh, your ma- our magazine is a lot, it's a lot more than the paper of the magazine. It's a lot more than the bi-monthly magazine. We have the books, and then we have, like, T-shirts that are created by the artist that, you know, 50% of them go back to the artist, and then we have a community-supported journalism fund that people just donate to. But really, we do have this amazing community of people that were 100% at the door right away. What can we do? Can we throw a show? Can we send you some money? You know, it, uh, you know, can I walk your dog? Like, what is it going to take for you guys to keep going? And they absolutely have kept us in business during these last four months since we got that email from, from, the, from the IPA. So do you think that, that other magazines have, are going to go out of business because of this? Is this a, is this a real stab in the heart of, of independent literary and critical and artistic publications in the country? It is. It profoundly is. Um, a number of magazines have already decreased their, um, changed their format or coming out less, um, fewer times per year or have decreased the number of pages or, you know, we, that's the thing about print, like we, there's no other way to keep going. And so it has already begun to affect things in a, in a disastrous, frustrating way. So what's next? Wait for the check or change the model? How is what's going to happen at Punk Planet? 
Uh, well, yeah, we're trying to change the model. Um, we uh, would love to not be waiting for the check, but that involves, you know, cooperation on the part of people that, you know, aren't sure that they quite have the money yet. And so I, I guess we have to be patient while we're, while we're coming up with alternative solutions. And once we get an alternative solution that works, of course, we're going to try to get, you know, bitch and clamor and color lines and in these times and giant robot all on board and, and make sure that these publications can't be affected by this stuff again in the future. Now, am I right to, to assume that the books that Punk Planet puts out are all not distributed through Independent Press Association, or is that... Oh, that is correct. We actually have a, our um, book publishing partner, Akashic Books in Brooklyn, um, works with Consortium in Minneapolis, which is another... Oh. Um, which is another uh, independent book distributor. So there, there are there are different ways to get things out there in the world, and it seems like you guys are are working in many different ways to kind of keep Plunk Planet going, even though this has uh, been a roadblock. Well, we are. We we represent some really great people, and they have really amazing ideas, and we want to make sure that you know things like media consolidation don't uh, close off their voice. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moby Lives to tell us about it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anne. Denise Nicholas on the line. Miss Nicholas, welcome to Moby Liz Radio. Oh, thank you. Welcome to you, <laughs> my life, to my world. <laughs> it's great to talk to you. Um, uh, you began your career as an Emmy-winning television and film star. You were, in fact, uh, one of the first teachers I ever had a crush on as a young man. <laughs> uh, you were on uh, Room 222, kind of yes. a historic show in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Went on to be on tons of... Uh, of, of great TV shows, uh, Heat of the Night, Cosby mm-hmm. Show, movies. Mm-hmm. And now you've got a hit book on your hands called Freshwater Road, mm-hmm. a novel. And you'll forgive me saying so, but there are cynics out there who, um, uh, who distrust the ways of modern media and would say that you have a hit novel on your hands because you have some sort of advantage as a celebrity. But you actually paid your dues as a writer, mm-hmm. didn't you? As I understand it, you've, uh, you've been a writer for most of your career. Well, I certainly dreamed of, you know, it was my hobby uh, from way back. I always uh, saw myself as being a writer at some point. I just didn't, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know what 
what area, what genre I would really be um, most comfortable in. So it took mm-hmm. a long, long time to figure all that out because I was so steeped in television. My first uh, writing jobs were on television on In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote six scripts for Carol O'Connor on that show mm-hmm. and discovered uh, very clearly that that was not the kind of writing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really interested in novels and long-form fiction and uh, other other sorts of things. So mm-hmm. I had to go back to school, uh, went back to USC in a professional writing program and, and took fiction writing classes and then found a private workshop with the writer Janet Fitch, who was teaching at that time in her home. So there were eight of us in her class. This is and Janet Fitch, who wrote White wrote, o- Oleander. White Oleander. Uh-huh. And um, that's where I really found uh, not only the voice for this book, but the, the real passion for the kind of writing that I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And it's, you know, it's novels. So, um, you know, we got a lot of rejection letters for this book. Is that it right? wasn't easy. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, uh, a very small publishing house, Agate, picked the book up and uh, wanted to publish it. But, uh-huh. you know, there's a downside to the celebrity thing as well, because a lot of people uh, don't take you very seriously. Mm-hmm. And they think that, you know, oh, here's another airhead actress trying to write a book. Mm-hmm. And they assume that it's a memoir. The last thing they think it is is literary fiction, which is exactly what it is. They just don't think uh, going in that an, an actress who's done television all of her life is capable of writing a book that they'd be interested to read. Well, in fact, the the book is getting the kind of reception that uh, publishers would dream of. Yes. Uh, we've got a front page Washington Post review saying mm-hmm. it is impossible to praise Freshwater Road too much. <laughs> and then is it uh, Newsday or Newsweek that Newsday, said New York Newsday? It, it, it's it's <laughs> the best work of fiction ever. Perhaps it's the best work of fiction ever written about the civil rights movement. These are uh, these are stunning uh, reviews I've got here in my hand. Well, you know, I've got those already framed. <laughs> <laughs> I never went to the frame shop so fast in my life. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's let's talk about the book proper. How would you describe it to to listeners who haven't read it yet? Well, it is it's it's certainly uh, its foundation. Uh, is from my own life, uh, in the sense that I that I went to Mississippi in 1964. Mm-hmm. Now I went to Mississippi as an apprentice with the Free Southern Theater. That's at the very beginning of my acting career. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't go down there to register people to vote as the main character in the book does. Mm-hmm. But certainly I was there and I was a witness to those uh, young people, students who were coming down there to, to register people to vote and run Freedom Schools. And, I, and though we were very much a part of the civil rights movement in our touring theater, I always felt we were a step back from it because we were doing theater. And they were really doing what I considered the real trench work uh, of getting uh, black people registered to, to vote for the first time in over 100 years. Mm-hmm. So those were white kids and black kids from universities all over this country who mm-hmm. converged on Mississippi that mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. And that's the summer, as people may remember, that Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were murdered. And it was, you know, it was a tumultuous and ex- extraordinary time. It was the best of times, and it was the worst mm-hmm. of times. I think that was, was that also the summer uh, when Medgar Evers was assassinated? He, he was killed the summer before uh-huh. uh, in Jackson. So this so, was really the height of the of, of the movement, as people right. think back in the 60s. Right. This was the, the real middle of it, uh, and you were there. And I was there. S- and so the book takes place against this backdrop. Yes. 
And I thought, you know, I could, I'm not a historian and I'm not a, you know, a politician. So I didn't want to write a nonfiction mm-hmm. book about it. I leave that to people with scholarship. Uh, though I, I had to do a lot of research to, to come up with a story and, and dress a landscape and paint a landscape that I wanted to see mm-hmm. or I wanted the reader to see. Uh, it's, it's not a work of nonfiction. It's not a memoir. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I did use wherever I could remember uh, certain uh, little events that I remembered from my own time in Mississippi. If I could make those things work mm-hmm. for the main character, I gave those to the main character or, mm-hmm. or to other characters in the book that I created. Uh, there were some things that were just too juicy and too wonderful to not use. Mm-hmm. You know, for example... Uh, we were performing in the Free Southern Theater in Bogalusa, Louisiana, at one point, and the sheriff there impounded um, our cars, our costumes, and our sets. I mean, we were a very small, poor theater, mm-hmm. but we were an integrated theater, and so that caused all kinds of, of problems. So uh, the sheriff impounded our car, took all of our stuff, and we had to get a lawyer from the Lawyers Guild, and there were many lawyers from uh, the Lawyers Guild who were working in the South at that time, trying to handle all these cases that were coming up as kids got arrested, got beaten, churches got burned, mm-hmm. people got shot at, so forth and so on. And so I was standing there in the uh, county courthouse when the sheriff picked up the lawyer by his lapels and threw him across the lobby. Oh, my God. So, I mean, I saw that with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. So when I got started writing my book, that flashed into my head, just that moment, what that looked like and what that felt like. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a young, you know, I was a young girl at the time, and I was looking at this incident that was so extraordinary. So I was able to take that kind of action and use it in my book mm-hmm. and give it to another character. Now, it and, must have been very difficult for you to revisit uh, incidents like that. Well, you know, there were times when it did get difficult because I really did steep myself during the writing process and all things of that time and place. Mm-hmm. I went back to Mississippi to do a research trip. I looked at all the documentaries that have been done uh, since then, uh, Spike Lee's film on the four little girls in the Birmingham church, uh, Eyes on the Prize, I looked at any number of times mm-hmm. and used that uh, Juan Williams book as one of my references as well as a couple of other books that have been written about the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And I thought uh, there were times when I was working when I couldn't work. I just have to put my head down on the desk and cry. Mm-hmm. So uh, then I also uh, wanted to surround myself with the music of that period, which is, which is full of joy and hope and love and, and all of that, unlike the music I hear today. But it also, it's just, it really grabs your heart. It mm-hmm. just to listen to Curtis Mayfield now and think back over that time when that music was playing all over Mississippi and mm-hmm. kids were singing it, you know, we were singing freedom songs and we shall overcome and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So you listen to that and you, I mean, it really tears me up. So, yeah, uh, yeah I had some times when I had to turn off the machine <laughs> yeah, yeah. and go out of the room. Well, I also uh, now in your clippings have read that you kept extensive journals at the time, and yet there was a point where you destroyed some of them. Have I have I got that story right? Yeah, I, I destroyed all of them. Uh huh. Um, I had journal. I had started. That was a part of my hobby: writing, mm-hmm. uh, keeping journals and mm-hmm. stuff. And I had those journals uh, that I carried around for years and years and years all through my work in television. I didn't do anything with them; they were mm-hmm. just sitting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I got started with the book. Um, 
I, I really wanted to start fresh. I wanted to, to create the characters and the world that, that I was writing and the place that I was writing. I wanted to create it without this um, overly heavy baggage mm-hmm. of my own interpretation mm-hmm. of it. I wanted to start with a clean slate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was a, it was a very risky thing for me to do. Uh, I see that now. I didn't At the time, I thought, you can do this, Denise. Get mm-hmm. rid of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Start clean, start fresh, see what you do, see what you come up with. Uh, so I did it, and as it, it's worked out, but it didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't well, have to. You clearly, you know, wanted to process your time there through writing. Yes. What was it like when, years and years later, you go into a writing program, mm-hmm. uh, become a student of writing all over again, and mm-hmm. study with Janet Fitch? Did you go in hoping to to further process that? Did you have other stories you wanted to tell? What, what mm-hmm. uh, sparked you into going back into a closer study of writing? Well, I, you know, I knew I wanted to, I always knew from way back that I wanted to write something about the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. because I didn't know what form it was going to take. I had about 30 pages that I had uh, been dragging around for 30, 30 pages for 30 years, mm-hmm. a page a year. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been good. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just, I knew that, that, that somewhere in there was going to be the, the core of the novel that I would one day write. Uh-huh. And so I didn't know, I mean, I didn't know. I, I just, I, I submitted that 30 pages to Janet to get into her workshop, and she accept, accepted me into the workshop. Uh-huh. So, so what the book is, is not, you know, the, the 30 pages was like a, a kicking, a jumping off point that uh-huh. Uh-huh. was in, in real broad strokes, yes, you know that had to be co- totally broken down and written in scenes and and changed, so mm-hmm. that nothing of that really remained. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, you know, I, I was very scared to go in there. I thought uh, the the writing was on a very high level. The other people in the class were people who had spent all the years that I had spent acting. They had spent writing. Mm-hmm. You know, though uh, one or two of them had been published, most of them were still waiting to be published, mm-hmm. but they had devoted their lives to the craft. Mm-hmm. And so I was, uh, even though I was as old, if not older than some of them, uh, I was the new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. So I did feel a certain insecurity and um, a lack of confidence uh, for a while. But as time went on, and I uh, grasped the things that she was teaching, it also the matter of discipline uh, in terms of a schedule of writing and, keep, and staying with it and staying with it, it material began to shape itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it turned out fine. And what about your background writing scripts? I mean, you, you did numerous television show scripts, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty strenuous kind of writing in itself. Yeah. Did that uh, prove relevant to, to writing uh, a novel or not? Uh, I don't really think so. Um, the, the one thing that I think does tr- has transferred over for me is dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, and and not only from writing the the few shows that I wrote for In the Heat of the Night, but just as an actress, you work in dialogue. That's all you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for all these years, even from my theater days in New York, I uh, basically have dealt with. Uh, dialogue, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so it seemed that when, once I got going with the novel, my scenes, the scenes that I'd have to dialogue, uh, that was not as difficult for me as it was for some others in the class. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's. Uh, I was also going to ask you about how you processed uh, when you were when you were writing the scripts. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself there too, writing about the civil rights movement? I mean, the 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 early shows you're on, particularly Room Two Twenty Two and Heat mm-hmm. of the Night, were shows that often dealt with those issues. Were you yeah. writing some of those episodes? No, I didn't write anything on Room Two Twenty Two. I submitted some things. I tried mm-hmm. uh, to, but I wasn't uh, able to sell anything there. Mm-hmm. But when I submitted my first, um, uh, pitched rather, my first idea to Carol O'Connor, it was, in fact, about the first black woman in this uh, fictional town of Sparta, Mississippi, mm-hmm. who tries to register to vote. And he loved the idea of trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, it's, you know, it's a cops and robbers show, and, but it does take place in Mississippi. And so I convinced him in our meeting that uh, no matter what, as long as he was filming that show in Mississippi, though it was contemporary, mm-hmm. Uh, it would be relevant and poignant to try to refer to that time in the 60s when that town had to start going through some changes. Mm-hmm. And so he, he accepted that and bought the idea on the spot and then uh, worked on the, uh, uh, developing the script for him. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it sounds like you've been working on Freshwater Road for a long time. I think I've been working on it all my life. Yeah. <laughs> Well, are you surprised by the reception to it now? Yes. I mean, I really could not find even a, a kind of a moderate review of the book. It really seems to be a, a terrific critical smash. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm very surprised. A uh-huh. lot of times I go to book events and book readings and people start talking about it and I stand there and start bawling like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's an intense thing because it yeah. is so... It is so uh, founded in my own personal experience, mm-hmm. and it is not only that, it is an illumination of the time, of my time of being a young woman coming in, you know, being mm-hmm. in college, and, mm-hmm. and so all of that, is, there's nostalgia in that for me, too, like it is for everybody in my age range. Mm-hmm. We're all looking back, uh, going, uh, you know, God, that was a good time. We had a great, we had a great time in the 60s. It wasn't about drugs. It wasn't about being wild and crazy. A lot of us were very serious, and a lot of us were doing very serious things. Mm -hmm. There was the Vietnam War movement, there was the women's movement, Mm -hmm. there was the civil rights movement, and there was this flowering, this kind of blossoming of freedom uh, and hope for people. Uh, There was a a lot of good, positive energy as Mm -hmm. well as, you know, the nutcases. So, you know, there's a nostalgia. Yeah. So, what now? Do you continue mining that in, in your in your next writing project, or mm-hmm. are you going elsewhere? Well, I think I'm going to try to get away from that civil rights. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's I think the period is so rich mm-hmm. uh, and so often so ignored that I probably could write another novel about some other aspect or using uh, other characters with a different point of view or whatever, mm-hmm. and probably be on pretty firm footing. Mm-hmm. But I want to write a love story, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm not exactly sure how uh, I, I'm going to shape it or where it's going to come from. But I know I have two characters in my head and mm. no, and notes on two characters. And this will be a novel. And it'll be a novel, mm-hmm. yes. Now, what about your time in Hollywood? You've seen uh, some really epical changes there mm-hmm. as well, and yeah. and some things that should have changed it didn't. But, will yeah. you ever be processing that as a writer? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think I have. You know, at, at this point in my life, and I'm not doing anything but this anymore. I mean, I'm not out chasing down acting jobs. If there's nothing out there. Way. That's I mean, it for you in acting? Yeah. I mean, unless something really wonderful, mm-hmm. you know, somebody 
you know, and doesn't want me to jump through hoops to get it because mm-hmm. I don't have too many more jumps in me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe something based on one of your novels. That would be great. <laughs> that would be great. You know, I don't know what character I'd play. I'm too old to play all of them now. But, all you know, in Freshwater Road, most of the people in the book are pretty young. Yeah. Except um, uh, one or two characters are, are age, you know, uh-huh. close to mine. Right, so, right. I mean, I would do that for sure. Yeah. I would, that would be fun. But um, I don't know. I I think so. I was I did a book event at Glendale Public Library last night, mm-hmm. and there and the question does come up: Am I going to write a memoir of my time in Hollywood? Uh, since Room Two Twenty Two wasn't in a way a very groundbreaking show, yeah, of course, and then right. Into the Heat in the Night was too. Mm-hmm. So and then there was a lot of stuff in between, and I would like to do that, but I would like to do it. I would like to do it once I have uh, my reputation as a writer uh, solidified. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and but you're talking about a memoir or a fiction? I or? was thinking about a memoir, uh-huh. the Hollywood stuff. Uh-huh. You know, I could really get down and dirty. <laughs> 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 no, I couldn't. Well, your first show, I mean, 222 is your first show, right? First big show. And yeah, that... I did a couple of episodes, you know, in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first got to New York from Missis- from Louisiana, Mississippi, there was a show called NYPD, mm-hmm. and it was uh, with uh, Frank Converse and Robert Hooke. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did some like five or six episodes on that with a very small role. So that was really my first. And, very and, first your, and your first starring role. Yeah. Well, it was a show that proved, uh, uh, as I recall, it was not only that, that it was doing all kinds of new things as far mm-hmm. as just the story, as, as far as mixing comedy and drama together yeah. and, and civil rights issues of the time, yeah. but also, it, wasn't it also a crew that went on, the, 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 the MTM crew was, was kind of developed around that yes. show? James the, Elbrook. The Mary Tyler Moore crew? Uh-huh, Alan Burns, that whole bunch went mm-hmm. on to do the Mary Tyler Moore show and Rhoda, all those shows. Yeah, it was so hugely successful. Very, very influential uh, program in more ways yeah. than one. Yeah. Well, um, let me close by asking you about one of your artistic decisions, which was uh, to go with a small press out of Chicago. Now, you said you had some rejections early on, yeah. but I'd also bet just because of who you are that you would have easily gotten uh, one of the big publishers in New York interested, but you go with, with Tiny Agate out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, h- how did you come to that decision? Well, you know, in fact, we really did get a lot of rejection letters from the major publishers, and I don't know, um, I can't tell you how much glee I find is the fact that we've got these good reviews. <laughs> and I just want to make up packets of all the good reviews and send them to every one of them. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know. <laughs> the day isn't long enough. I'm trying to be nice. Yeah. But, uh, no, you know, Doug, Doug liked the book. He really, he loved the book. Mm-hmm. And I knew that uh, writing this kind of material, writing about the civil rights movement, even in fiction, and even though it's a girl, in a sense, a girl story, girl coming of age story, one of the things I was going to really need to sell this book was the enthusiasm of the publisher. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel, even if I had gotten a big publisher, as I learned more about this business going through that process, mm-hmm. that I was going to get that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of heart from a bigger, a big corporation. Mm-hmm. So, though uh, at the beginning I was. I was hurt that I didn't get a big a big house. 
as it turns out, this is the best possible place for me because we have a good working relationship. Mm-hmm. He's accessible, I'm accessible, and we have worked so so much together to get this book out. And the, the he you're talking about is Doug Seibold for, uh-huh. for our listeners yeah. who is the publisher. Yeah, we were, this is really the labor, a labor of love for both of us. Mm-hmm. So um, I've even seen reviews that 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 uh, applauded you for working with the small house. So it's yeah. a nice story all around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Denise Nicholas, uh, it's a pleasure talking to Thank you. you. Congratulations on the great success. Again, Thank the book for our listeners is called Freshwater Road. It's from Agate Press and the author Denise Nicholas. Thank you so much for coming on Mobiles Radio. Thanks. Bye. And that's this week's show. Thanks to our guests, Anne Elizabeth Moore, who spoke to us from Punk Planet, planetary headquarters in Chicago. Thanks as well to Denise Nicholas, who spoke to us from her home in Los Angeles, California. And while I'm doling out all the thanks, thanks, of course, to Andrew Steinmetz, our engineer, and to the reporters slash editors here at Melville House, Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and, of course, publisher Valerie Marians. We'll be back next week. Hope you will, too. In the meantime, it's, it's, it's extremely important that you remember that whale is out there. Moving to a hood of men, I'm moving to a hood of men, moving to a hood of men, I'm moving to a hood of men, 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 moving to